Welcome to Jason in the Movie Knots. I'm Jason Sachs. And I'm Chris Wunderlich. And we are discussing the movies of Robert Downey Sr., focusing on Greaser's Paradise, Greaser's Palace. I keep making that same mistake. And Putney Swope. Yeah. Uh, and I watched a bunch of his other movies too, which we'll come to shortly. So, Chris, have you encountered Downey before we talked about him before the show? No, actually, I just um, I just ran across his movies because they popped up on on Tubi, the free video streaming service. Um, they were labeled as cult classics there, and I thought the poster looked really cool. And once I started watching it, I realized it was Robert Downey Sr. And uh, yeah, all the pieces fell into place. Is uh, I mean, I always knew he was a filmmaker, but I'd never actually seen any of his movies. Well, what was your impression after seeing these two? Um, I understand why I never saw any of his movies before. <laughs> yeah, they're not easy movies, are they? They're not easy movies. No, they're not easy movies. They're not movies that other people are likely to uh, push on you unless you're crazy like we are, right? And just want to delve into movies for the sake of it. They are real cult classics in the in the truest definition of the term. I don't think yeah. that's necessarily a bad thing either. No, it's actually kind of nice to have cult classics that are really respected by a, an actual small audience instead of, you know, like, heck, we could have watched more Paul Thomas Anderson movies and called them cult classics, but they're some of the biggest movies in the world, right? Yeah. It's funny you call, you mentioned Anderson because he and Downey Sr. were actually friends. Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, I, uh, before this, I watched a little thing of uh, Paul Thomas Anderson talking to uh, Jonathan Demme about Greaser's Palace. And uh, yeah, it seems like Danny Sr. was a real film buffs filmmaker, um, but not in the strictly arty sense that you might think of that. No, he's not a particularly arty guy, which I think is really interesting. You know, well, Danny Sr. seems more, I don't know, just more of a, this, this kind of free spirit, not even free spirit, that's not the right word for it. I'm not sure I mean, what the term is, is for him. It is very artsy. But in a way that it's someone laughing their head off at art, not mm -hmm. um, wanting you to see the mystical poetry behind it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so, like, uh, some of his earlier movies, like Chafe Elbows and No More Excuses, actually read, like, proto, like, SNL skits. Oh, really? Yeah. Or maybe Pyth they're, they're a little Python-esque interesting so there's this one of his very first movies he made which was partially included in uh i think it's no more excuses um he has a civil war uh soldier who's who for no reason that we're ever given an explanation in the movie is brought back to life in the modern day out in new jersey he okay. wanders over a bridge into new york city um hops a ride in the motorcycle ends up on the field at Yankee Stadium. Because <laughs> okay. where would a Southern soldier want to go? Yankee Stadium. Sure. And so he has a guerrilla film of him actually on the field at Yankee Stadium during a game circa like 1968. Nice. Nice. Yes, yeah, that's it. He He's an artistic filmmaker. But uh, but yeah, again, he's he's just laughing at anyone that's looking for the deep meaning here. And I think that's part of the genius of why I'm such a big fan of Putney Swope. Ah, okay. 
Okay, let's talk about Putney Swope. You're a fan. You're not a fan, Chris? I don't, I, I did not care for it. I mean, I mean, uh, there's parts of it that I really loved. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. And again, it, the whole spirit of um, Downey's filmmaking is like infectious. It, he's, he's very interesting filmmaker right like you have a sense that he's just putting on screen like it almost feels like he's deciding in the moment what would be the silliest funniest or weirdest thing he can put in front of him almost just so he can get a kick out yeah you know yeah um which makes it like an interesting experience but i don't know if he's a very good storyteller and i don't know if he ever aims to be so well, having seen most of his films, I can tell you, no, he's not a great storyteller. Okay. <laughs> but I don't think that's his intention either. And even at the point he made a movie with Melissa, uh, Alyssa Milano in 1997, uh, he still wasn't a great filmmaker <laughs> in terms of storyline. In terms of story. Okay. Okay. So that's fine. But um, okay, so Putney Swope, tell me about it because I mean, I half understood it, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of based on its in its specific time period, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it really is kind of, it's interesting because now we have this this context to put it in too, which is like, it's a, the area immediately post-Mad Men. Yeah. When advertising was this big, powerful force in American society and was seen as this big, uh, inf- this area that's really influencing the world. Same way you might think of an Instagram influencer influencing the world today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, advertising comes across to me in this movie as sort of like, you know, if we were talking about Facebook or Instagram, it like it was like had a social media type presence where it connected everyone and had this overarching controlling feeling, right? Yeah. And then the intellectuals and hipsters, especially in New York City, looked down on that field because yeah. they're like, this is this is inauthentic. This is driving us away from what America should be all about. You know, this is it, it's it's kind of the classic example of um the the uh standard of the culture versus the rebels of the culture yeah 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 it's, it, it, there's nothing more establishment than advertising so therefore the government <laughs> yeah except for the government literally the government right so a black takeover of an advertising agency could be seen as this radical attempt to change the world in a way that suits the way people actually live right and i think i came to the movie with that understanding or that expectation right and then johnny's point to me in putney swope besides the fact of cracking jokes and everything is that power corrupts and putney himself who gets elevated to leadership of this agency really by accident more or less um ends up becoming just as bad as the people he pushed out takes credit for everyone else's ideas he fires everybody who works for him and by the end he's giving up his idealism and he's advertising war toys and cigarettes and things like that that he had sworn he wouldn't ever advertise yeah so it's kind of looking towards the 70s and this kind of co-option of uh of uh larger society and maybe it's also a little bit of like about race versus class in terms of how you're oriented so uh, that's a little bit of what i see there i think to your point of of power corrupting um you know and and this 
Guy Putney, right? He's like middle management at this advertising firm. Um, the the head guy dies, and then they accidentally sort of appoint Putney as the the head of the company. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, this movie had me at the beginning, mm-hmm. right? Like it starts off with an amazing shot of the guy in the helicopter. So great. And, yeah, like like such a good way to start a movie. And, you know, he swoops down and he's just like this, you know, this like proto-punk, but an old guy. And he comes into this office and he gives them like a, a few sentences of a speech and it costs them like a million dollars or whatever. You know, I mean, I was laughing right from the get-go. I was impressed by the filmmaking right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. The premise is interesting. I'm expecting something here. Um, but I think to your point of having this this power corrupting this guy, it's just so poorly um, portrayed, I guess, right off the okay. bat, because we don't really get an idea of who Putney is before he takes power. And as soon as he does, we think like, okay, you know, he points all black people to his board. But then he's like immediately a jerk. Like there's no progression of like this innocent guy that doesn't want to promote war toys to someone who gives up his morals it's sort of like there's this guy and then he gets appointed and by the way he's a jerk and it's like i guess he was corrupted but like he's just a terrible boss and a terrible person and not someone you can actually root for in this movie and i mean he's kind of funny like there's some good jokes that he makes but like i really had a miserable time watching his adventure because i couldn't root for the guy oh funny or oh, funny interesting interesting um you didn't what do you think of the the fake ads that they were showing through the movie uh, okay well that that's smart that that i mean those had me right okay. um i mean they're not all equal there's the the airline one that goes on for like 10 minutes or something just, <laughs> and it's fun right it's got this like this mad or rebellious filmmaker energy to it right you can't look away it's very neat it's very uh engaging <laughs> You know, it's not the funniest, right? But some of those ads, they're like, oh, okay, here's a nice little skit. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of funny. That's like, you know, a good five minutes that would have been in like, you know, uh, what was it, the Groove Tube or uh, Amazon Women from Mars or whatever, right? Like those are movies. So there are things to appreciate. But I just like, whatever the main story was trying to be, it was just sort of all over the place, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and that's a criticism I have of all his movies is that mm. it does feel like it kind of goes all over the place. That the you have to kind of do a lot of work to read it between the lines to even find that tightness in there. I mean, it took yeah. me a little while to really pick up that you know he is getting more corrupted. But you're right; I mean, he is kind of an asshole right from the very beginning. Yeah, I'm not given any reason for him to be an asshole. And not yeah. and a lot of this stuff never quite connects either. You know, there's all these reports of this guy who's exposing himself in movie theaters, never really starts or ends with anything. It's just a little kind of running gag. And you know what? There are some like stuff like that, right? There are nice little gags. Um, like the guy that's exposing himself, and then Putney keeps saying, Oh, bail him out, promote him. And it's like, ha ha ha, because that wouldn't happen. Like, I guess that's a gag. Then there's other moments where it's like, oh, this poor messenger, they keep telling him to take the freight elevator. Mm-hmm. And then he gets mad at the end and tries to shoot up the office and doesn't actually hit anyone. It's like, that wasn't really funny. That was just sort of like, oh, I guess everyone's a jerk. All right. Yeah. And then, I mean, yeah. his friend, the, the guy that's always, uh, he calls him the Arab. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. He had some sort of a plot there. He wants Putney to be more extreme. 
um and he's sort of an antagonist but he's sort of a friend i don't know there's there's a terrible scene where putty catches him in the office with a woman and he goes you're fired and he goes well, don't fire me and he goes okay well the woman's fired and it's like uh, okay is that a joke i don't know yeah yeah a lot of that stuff just doesn't land and of course like a, no. a workplace shooting is just never funny to me either no no or, it, it, it i can't can come I, off yeah it wasn't even an interesting plot point. And I mean, there's other things where it's like, oh, the president of the United States, you know, they, they want to have Putney on speed dial here because, you know, Putney's got so much control over the American population that the president, you know, and the president's played by a little person. And they have kind of a funny voice and everything. And then there's just these really long scenes where they're telling stories or I, I'm not sure if there's a plot that's supposed to be developing there or, or if he just, I, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah and that's that's really the flaw in this movie right is that like if you take it out of its context like it just doesn't hold together in a way that's like extremely satisfying but you've got to kind of appreciate it in the in the tempo of its times i guess i mean it's kind of like this almost it's this weird combination of like a post woodstock uh satire like disappointment crossed okay. with this uh almost like summer of love euphoria about how things are going to change or something it's it is a very odd film yeah and i mean hey i love my odd films you you know we're this yeah me and you we talk odd films that's the point right so i mean there's a lot of odd things in this movie that appeal to me right i mean i love i love the scene where you know putney's like he's freshly a boss he doesn't really know what he's doing a guy comes in and he's like i want you to sell my new kind of mousetrap and he goes uh oh you know what? I just thought of an idea for a mousetrap. Hey, you tell him what my idea was. And he tells this ridiculous story about Christopher Columbus coming to the Bahamas and like stealing the land. And then he's like, yeah. And then you just put on the screen how much your product costs and where to get it. I said, oh, it's brilliant. It's like, oh, that's kind of a funny scene. And then Putty immediately fires the guy that came up with the story. And it's like, oh, that, that was a jerk move. Uh-huh. Like you just got rid of a character I was rooting for. You know, I, I don't know, like the, the, a funny scene, well made, well directed, well written, well acted. And then you just kind of ruined it by deciding to take the story in a direction that was very unsatisfying. So you kind of like the idea of Putney Step Swap more than the movie itself. Oh, I mean, it's got lots of good ideas. Um, although one of. OK, was this a good idea? Having Putney Swope himself. Uh, what's his name? Arnold Johnson. Apparently he couldn't remember much of his lines. So Robert Danny Sr. dubbed his voice yeah. over him the entire yeah. movie. That's why he's got that grindy voice. <laughs> it's so weird. And at first I hated it and thought it was cheap filmmaking. And then I kind of just accepted it and it was kind of nice. What did you think of that? <laughs> yeah, I like that too. Honestly, I like the kind of energy to that. And um you know, I, I I actually rented the DVD of it, and um, a lot of Downey stories about making the movie are, oh, I found this guy backstage yeah. at this movie theater, I found this guy at a club, and I found, met this guy at a party. Like, none of these people are professional actors except for Alan Arvis, who's the yeah. um, the dancer in in, um, in Greaser's Palace. Uh and so, like, it, it's it's funny in that way, too, where it's like this extremely casual get-together of people. And, you know, it feels like sometimes we're not in on the joke. 
Uh, yeah, I it felt a, that I think that's a good way to <laughs> to explain it because you can tell, like you, you can almost hear the laughter behind the camera, right? Yeah. In a lot of these scenes, you could tell Robert <laughs> Senior is having a grand time making this movie. I just wish I was having as much fun watching it, you know? Because I, I mean, there's a few laughs, right? there's a few little giggles, there's a few kind of uh, neat things that happen. But then there's a lot of points where it's like, okay, putt and swoop. He's our hero for change, except he's a jerk. You know, this guy wants a raise so he can be equal to other people. Putney shoots him down. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, and then Putney sleeps with this other woman and he's a jerk to his maid, you know. And then he has a really funny scene where he's being interviewed and he has, you know, all these Mad Magazine-esque remarks to all the interviewers' questions. It's like, oh, that's kind of funny, but, you know, I, I don't care what happens to this character and you know like i'm not rooting for anyone i don't care what happens to anybody here and the next thing to come up you know maybe it'll make you laugh a little is it Did worth it i don't feel know like he wanted you to care about the characters either here or in greaser's palace um well okay he definitely doesn't want you to care about the story that much is clear um i guess it felt like the main thing was to make you laugh i guess because you know, every scene was sort of like, oh, the characters are doing something mm-hmm. and that normally wouldn't be done. You know, like, oh, all these uh, executives for the company, they're bowing to this black man and wanting him to promote their product. That doesn't happen these days. And, uh-huh. you know, was that really funny back then? Was that original? Or is it just Robert Downey being like, I know some ad executives, they're jerks. Here, let's put them on camera. Yeah, and ultimately that's what I find frustrating about most of his movies. So he followed up Putney Swope with a movie called Pound. Did you hear about Pound? I've heard of Pound. I thought that came before Putney, or was it after? It was, yeah, it was after Putney and before Brewster's Palace. Okay, I hadn't seen that one, but is it good? (laughs) Uh, And it's available on YouTube, so it's very easy to find. Oh. Um, And it's a story about um, dogs in a pound. And they're all played by people. Okay. And, it's, and on top of it, there's this very strange storyline where someone's going and assassinating people at random in the streets of New York. Not really connected at all to each other, but okay. Elf with uh, a gun. Elf with a gun. Yeah. Yeah. Like my man <laughs> Gerber. That's right. Um, and the whole way through, like, it's kind of entertaining and kind of interesting and kind of clever. And then it just kind of goes on and it's got moments that are kind of cute and charming that don't end up kind of leading up to anything. Like there's literally a scene where the dogs played by people escape from their, the pound and they're running around the streets of New York. And then the next scene, they're all in the pound again behind the gate. And it's like, what's happening here i don't get it nothing's connecting there's another bit where um the jailer um says the gas isn't working where she she can't gas the dogs and then a minute later they're gassing the dogs and it's kind of spooky and weird and kind of bizarrely upsetting Uh. i just didn't know how to interpret (laughs) that either yeah no kidding okay so okay so I was unimpressed with Putney Swope because it yeah. didn't make me laugh enough and it didn't make me care enough. And it had some interesting, interesting moments and interesting filmmaking things. But why did you love it? I guess I like the energy of it. I like the, the feel 
that just keeps like hurtling forward in a way that just is very unpredictable. And there's just enough plot in it to keep me interested <laughs> and to, to keep me kind of hanging on with these people as they're moving ahead. Uh, I also think this is this is uh, just one of the things that I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of lead myself down a blind alley here. I think it's a really re revolutionary movie for its time. Okay. And I think seen in its time frame where, you know, Bonnie and Clyde had just come out the year before New York avant-garde cinema is really becoming a thing at this point. Uh, I think for its time, and I, I think it's a pretty cool film. And at the time it was recognized as something like one of the reasons it's known outside of New York City is that Jane Fonda talked it up on the Johnny Carson show. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it was like a cause, not a cause celeb, but it was um, something that's known to be like this very big kind of rebellious thing at the time. And so I like it from that context also. See, I, I feel like I want it to be that. I want it to be this rebellious thing. And I'm just not getting any of that from it. I'm getting is like, okay, so there's these white people that have this uh, ad agency. And then suddenly, okay, the black people are taking over revolution time, except it's not, it just is kind of run the same way. And the boss is always a terrible person, no matter who he is. And uh, here's some funny little advertisements. Yeah. It's like, oh, is that like a revolutionary? Is that like a, a, a counterculture thing? Or is it just like a an idea that really isn't as interesting as I want it to be, you know? I don't know. I wanted to like it so badly. Yeah, maybe I was just in a different mindset than you when I watched it. I mean, it could just be a context thing, right? It'd be what I watched before it the first time I saw it, then I go back and, <laughs> and renew it. Um, This was my first time seeing Greaser's Palace. Oh, Greaser's Palace. Well, that's a different story. I mean, are, are we ready to move on from Putney Swap? I, I really don't have anything to say besides I was disappointed. Okay. And okay. there's a few laughs. but Nothing got busted. At least it's short, right? Was it short? It felt long. I don't know. Really? It felt real long to me because, I mean, the scenes are almost interchangeable. He walks into an office and some guy says, hey, how about this for an ad? And he says, you're fired. I say, okay. Was that supposed <laughs> to be funny? Was that supposed to build character? Was it supposed to say that, I don't know, people are expendable? I don't know what it was supposed to say. Yeah, it's a big 84 minutes. So. Oh, boy. Well, wow, Chris. Okay, you really liked it much less than I did. I yeah, I just got so. off of the energy. I just like the unpredictability of it. Uh, yeah. I thought the the giant ensemble cast was fun to see also. Just a lot of fun to see all these different actors up uh, on the screen. And they all seem to be bringing their own unique thing to it. And unlike some of his other films where they're all kind of off in their own world, um, mm -hmm. here they're much more, they're relating to each other. It's one of the few movies where the that he directed. Uh, and I'll talk about this after we talk about Greaser's Palace, where the characters really feel like they're actually relating to each other. Mm, okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it did have an interesting cast, but I mean, half of them didn't do anything interesting for me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's fair. Yeah. If, if the whole movie lived up to the promise of that opening scene, Boy, oh. it, it would be a true classic for me. <laughs> I'm not denying that opening scene is outstanding. Yeah. 
It's so yeah. cool. It, that, it's so that, cool. That put me in the mindset of this is going to be a cool movie because that's such a cool scene. And then I don't know. I've imagined Greaser's Palace is more your style. Oh, totally, totally. <laughs> I, I I love Greaser's Palace. I loved it. You you tend to go for these kind of really uh, very surreal, slightly hard edged kind of genre mashup kind of concepts. Well, I mean, it's okay. It's perhaps even a little more confusing than Putney Swope, but at least it has like the setting and the storyline that allows it to be more confusing. You know, it, mm-hmm. it puts you in a place where you can just, you know, it's almost Lynchian where you just sit back and you say, it's okay that I don't understand this. It's okay. I'm going to enjoy the ride. And you know what? It gives you a lot to enjoy. What did, uh, did you like it? Yeah. It reminded me a little of the Yodorowsky films we were, we, we were watching. <laughs> it's got big El Topo energy, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I was, I described in my letterbox review as El Topo light. Yeah, well, it's very different. It's very different, but it's it's got the same. Uh, puts you in the same place, doesn't it? Yeah, it's got that kind of that mind melding kind of feeling that could really only be done in a desert environment, where everything feels big, and the characters' lives feel vast in a strange way, but yet the lives are actually much smaller than you think because the interior lives are so bizarre. Um, and so it's it's got this kind of constant like push pull energy to it. That I think is interesting and exciting. And you know he he goes out of his way to like make this movie. Downey goes out of his way to make this movie feel like it's set. God knows where. God knows when. God knows how. <laughs> it's just in this yeah. weird mental space, right? Because he's got the scene early on where um, the guy's riding off into the middle of the desert. There's nothing around for miles, and the guy parachutes in behind him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, yeah, it, again, this movie, I mean, it's it's got that El Topo energy, too, because it's like, it, it can only look this way being filmed, you know, pre-1980s, right? They both have, like, the 60s, 70s camera in the desert, in the Western. It's that look, it's that feel, and it feels so good, you know, to have a Western shot at that time, right? Ah. Uh, and again, yeah, I mean, they call them acid westerns for a reason, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's like you said, it's on that mental plane of, uh, I, I don't know where this is or what's going on, but there's enough familiarity to it to uh, to, to hold on to, you know? It's got a western feel, almost like a Leone kind of film in a way, but it goes off in such a different tangent. Yeah, well, I mean, okay, I mean, the, the base, or maybe story. like one of those sub Leone kind of spaghetti westerns, <laughs> yeah, yeah Gucci temp, or something, right? yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, okay, so the, so the movie is is sort of uh, there's a the western town, right, and uh, <laughs> Alan Arbus plays sort of Jesus, and he kind of flies into town. And uh, he's determined to go to Jerusalem so he can be a singer, actor, dancer. And uh, the town is led by, what's his name? Seaweed Head Greaser. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just, the you know, the, the grumpy old crime boss of the Old West. And he's, uh, you know, he's got his mother locked up and he's got a mariachi band locked up and he walks by them every day so he can try to go to the bathroom. 
because it's constipated. And uh, what was it? His daughter, she puts on the shows at the bar and townsfolk, you know, they kind of like her and stuff, but her act is growing old. So um, in walks uh, Alan Arbus here is, is uh, they call him Jesse, mm-hmm. right? And he puts on a little show and they're not too impressed until his hands start bleeding and then everyone thinks he's the second coming and or the first coming, who knows, right? They never really explained that. Um, and, you know, you've got the Holy Ghost walking around. And it's just a guy with a sheet over his head. And, uh, you know, God the Father is apparently walking around, too, just drinking a lot and kind of disappointed with the world. Uh, there's an angel who's just a cowboy in, in fancy red gear with tassels and all. And, uh, yeah, and then there's a whole side plot about this woman who... Um, you know, frontier life. She sits out with her her son and husband, and they end up being killed. So she buries them, and she just keeps getting more and more injured and near death. And I really don't know. I don't know what her plot was about. I started wondering if, like, the whole point is that she's just this woman who's tortured for her entire life or something. Yeah. And then finally, at the end, she gets like everyone comes back thanks to Jesse, and it's like. Oh, thank goodness. Although they actually all dead and whatever. Yeah, yeah. He didn't really tie those together too well. <laughs> no. I mean, there's a part where, where Jesse like falls in love with this woman or something, and then she ends up crucifying him and and then her family comes back. I don't know. Um <laughs> but again, there's a lot of a lot of interesting gags in this movie, and, and this one had a lot of laughs for me. This uh, one I was constantly like wanting to see what the next weird thing he threw at the screen would be. Oh yeah, I totally agree with that. And there are just so many weird things that happen. I love it when Jesse starts doing bop singing and dancing on yeah. a random stage. But yeah. also like the cast is just all over the place. Herb Villachez from <laughs> freaking Fantasy Island appears in there. <laughs> For for I don't know why his scene was included. I again, this is Robert Downey Sr. saying, "You know what would be funny," <laughs> and then just filming it and putting it in the movie. Ah, so so wacky. Yeah, uh, I think the woman who gets killed repeatedly is his ex-wife. By the way, Elsie. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And the boy who gets killed is Robert Downey Jr. That's right. And he says at one point, I'm not sure how my son felt about that. I don't think he was very happy about having to die on screen. Like, well, yeah, I can see that. But to your point of the casting, I think that's what what definitely elevates this far and above Putney Swope for me is, I mean, I love Alan Arbus. He's a great actor. Um He's in this movie, and I don't know if he knows what he's supposed to be doing in this movie. <laughs> like, he, he looks confused on screen. Mm-hmm. But I'm rooting for him, you know? Yeah. Like, he's a neat character, and I just... He's a great actor. He's a, a very strange character, and I I love the the henchman who's, a, like, Greaser's son, who he keeps killing, you know, and Jesse keeps bringing him back to life. And every time he has the same story about the afterlife, and by the last time he's finally telling his story, I don't remember what he said. He's swimming naked with babies, and then he becomes a perfect smile. And he goes, "I don't want to die anymore." Like, like boy, the afterlife is starting to get boring for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and again, he's like not a great actor, but just such a silly guy on screen that it it, it sells it. You know? Yeah, but there's so much 
this funny stuff in it. His name is Bingo Gas Station Motel Cheeseburger with a side of aircraft noise. And you'll be Gary Indiana. He loves to hurt people. Just those like <laughs> little things like that. Yeah. That's when, okay, they call it an acid western. I'm pretty sure that that line was written under some sort of influence and included, you know, against an editor's wishes or something. Because again, that's just Robert Downey being like, isn't this the funniest thing in the world? And everyone else going, I don't know. It's weird. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's marijuana. It's not uh, acid because he tells a story about only taking acid later on. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> Um, but it's got that kind of stoner logic to it, I think, where everything's just a little, excuse me, a little deeper, a little more connected, a little more ultra real. Yeah, yeah. He's a little mad with power behind that camera, I tell you. <laughs> you think he's mad with power? Oh, perhaps. I mean, put it this way. So many stupid things happen in this movie that only someone who, who you know, has enough power to be like, yes, we're putting this stupid thing in the movie. You know, he's got to be a little mad. Fair. Yeah, I think he's got to be a little mad. Yeah. Oh, there's so much great stuff. there. The cinematography is really, like, surprisingly good. It's very good, yeah. This is the first movie he made outside of New York City. Oh, well, I mean, he's enjoying the space, clearly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because the, the, the sky looks big. I mean, so much of it takes place in that, I don't even what to call it, the... the cafe or hotel or whatever that they end up blowing up at the end oh yeah and it's yeah, composed yeah. beautifully in terms of how it looks both when it's alive and when it's destroyed uh that that gave me the biggest laugh of, of the whole viewing experience was the guy going to the bathroom and coming out and everyone's cheering and he, he finally was able to relieve himself and it, it, well he literally dropped a bomb and the whole place exploded <laughs> it's such a stupid poop joke oh my god i didn't get that till just now no i just dropped the bomb oh Drop that's hilarious bomb. okay and it blew up oh my god i can't believe that went past me uh but again there's so many stupid things in here that it's like only a madman would find that funny you know he's got the the one the one uh henchman who's just like hey seaweed head and at first you think it's an insult until you realize yeah yeah he just named the character seaweed head greaser i don't know why um <laughs> but his one henchman you know is constantly telling stories about you know running away and having these sexual encounters and it's just why is this here i don't know it's weird it's kind of funny you know he's got the magician that runs up to him and, oh is this your card is this your card is this, this your card? yeah yeah, he loves that kind of repeating gag over and over. Is this your card? Is this your card? Is this your card? And then the, the sun the setting thing. behind him as he's walking, it looks beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So it's got this yeah. like, yeah, that's what I mean. Like it's got this beautiful Western feel to it. It feels very classic at the same time. feels completely just bizarre and transgressive. Yeah, and uh, you're right, though. He loves his repetitive humor. If something's not funny the first five times, it'll be funny the next five times, right? <laughs> Ugh. Yeah, there's so many, so many weird things in this movie. But again, it is enjoyable because it's sort of like you can look at it as like a, a biblical parable of some sort. But even from that sense, it's kind of funny. It's kind of thinking like, like okay, we're gonna have the story of the Bible and we're gonna set it in an old West town. It's like, but Jesus comes down and he just wants to be a singer and a dancer, and everyone just gets confused and thinks he's something else. And then, you know, when he goes into the desert to meet the devil, no, it's a talent agent. 
<laughs> he's a real uh-huh. jerk. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah he's, a, a, he's in a quest to meet the man from William Morris. Yeah. He's the man from the town agent from William Morris. Now there's the devil for you, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> there's the devil for you right there. Yeah. What a stupid subversive film thing. And somehow it feels kind of subversive might be the word for it or or no it's the opposite in some ways like uh the modern take on jesus in a way you know what yeah, but in a way that like he gave up on that idea almost immediately you mm-hmm. know? and, and it, it's kind of funny that it pays off that way uh, i mean there are like some some real jokes here where it's like oh i see the parable there you know the holy ghost comes up to him and he they almost like tag off he's like okay well you're done and income i and at least people know who you are and it's like oh okay that's a joke i've heard christians make like you know we have the holy ghost but we don't know who he is did it and it's like oh that's almost a smart joke it's like, but then he has you know his character is just a guy in a sheet walking around burning people with cigars so i think what you liked about this movie is Patti Swopia never had any idea there was a deeper story behind it. It's just like a bunch of things happen. People stay the same pretty much. And then it ends. It has a few good moments, but right. And here there's this very strange sense throughout it. Like there's a deeper story here. If you just were able to like pull out all these elements and put them together in a way that's sequential and makes sense and you can sort out what's symbolic and what's real what's meant to be a parable and what's meant to be authentic then suddenly everything kind of starts to come together more and you have this deeper story hidden underneath well i think i mean yes but i think he's taking like that very filmmaker-esque approach and saying like, okay, it's going to be a parable. It's going to be a modern reinvention. You know, we're going to change the setting. stuff, And it's almost just a parody of that. It's almost Uh just a parody of filmmakers that try to take that seriously. Where he's like, oh, I'm going to do that too. And it's just going to be full of poop jokes, you know? (laughs) El Topo was 1970, right? So uh, So he (laughs) could have seen it. Before he saw that, certainly was aware of it. If it did, let me double check my math here. It's possible, yeah. Oops, not with two teeth. Um, I like your your comment there, though. Where yeah, nineteen seventy, and you know, it certainly came to lower to uh, Greenwich Village, New York. So he definitely saw it. Um, yeah, no way it couldn't have been an influence on him. I'm sure, he's getting stoned talking about Yodorowsky with his friends. Um. That's an interesting point. Yeah, I, I don't know. This movie, I mean, the gags here, they worked for me. In Putney Swope, a few of them did, a few of them didn't. In this one, like, you know, you under, I, I, could, I could connect with the characters. You know, even if they're just like random henchmen following a Western bad guy, mm-hmm. you know, at least they're an archetype we understand. And if they do something ridiculous, it's funny because it's out of character, you know? There is some progression here, and all the all the weird things, you know, like the guy keeping a mariachi band in a cage near his bathroom, <laughs> right? Like to me, that's a joke in itself. He doesn't have a character say like, "Oh, lock up that mariachi band," and that'd be the joke, right? Like in Putney Soap, the joke would be Putney comes in and says like, "Lock up a mariachi band," and you think like, "Oh, is that a joke? I don't get it." In this one, he just shows you, and it's funny. Uh-huh. Wow. You kind of talked me into liking the movie more than I thought I did. 
Uh, I, I mean, I trouble Kylie putting all the pieces together. Like, I like the ideas in general. I really like Alan Arbus in the film. There's a yeah. tragic story about him, actually, while he was making the film. Oh, um, his wife was Diana Arbus, who was a yeah. great photographer. Um, and she committed suicide during the filming of the movie. Oh, that happened then. Yeah. So he, he came back home for a few weeks and then went back out to, with his friends. So it might be part of why he looks so kind of lost and confused I, in the movie. I was going to say, maybe it's not his character in Poor Direction. Maybe uh, the man was crushed. Ouch. Yeah, it's horrible. It's just horrible. She seems like she was a pretty remarkable person, too. Well, I mean, yeah, she's she's incredibly famous for her photography. And, you know, I mean, I only knew Alan Arbus as, like, the guy that would show up on MASH a few times, right? He was, like, the psychologist and stuff. Yeah, he actually um, had a long career, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. He always pops up and stuff, and it's always a welcome surprise. This is the only thing I've ever seen him as the lead in, though. Um, I think it is the only movie he was a lead in. Really? As I look through his filmography, I don't see him as being a main character in, well, maybe a few obscure things, but nothing that would appear on a streaming service, really. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, the, the difference here is like with Putney Swope, you can tell Robert Downey Sr. was, you know, surrounded by people he thought was cool and wanted to make a movie that he thought was cool. And, you know, he... It, He's got the woman dancing and he's got all the people and he's got the cool music and like cool is the word for Putney Swope. Yeah. The word is weird and he pulls it off so much better than cool, you know? Well, I mean, sometimes his movies feel like he's the guy who's hanging out with his friends and just films himself hanging out with his friends. <laughs> yep. And you're like, well, I wasn't invited to that party. Looks like you guys had a good time. Cool. Great to see that, you know? Yep. Um, and that's especially true in uh, Two Tons of Turquoise to Taos Tonight, which is sold as like this Dadaistic uh, uh, film about uh, nothing, really, from 75. Oh. It's about an hour long. Um, okay. I just kind of felt like it was just a lot of annoying people who are drunk or stoned or on cocaine and who don't really connect to anything, including themselves. That doesn't sound very appealing, no. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, yeah, after after Greaser's Palace, Downey had a very strange career. I've seen a bit of his filmography, at least in lists, and, and it's, a, it's a very strange-looking list. After Greaser's Palace, his next project was a film called Sticks and Bones. Okay. Which is also available on YouTube. Um, it's one of the most, and it's from 1973, I believe, yeah. As the story goes, the film, this is a play uh, which was written for the New York stage by the great Joseph Papp, who uh, eventually would do Angels in America, if I'm right. Um, and it's a story about a young man coming back from the Vietnam War and his family kind of rejects him, just never finds his, his place in the world. And it's an extremely grim film filmed gorgeously though by Downey huh. uh, the cinematography the, the camera always feels like it's moving like it's trying to find its place in this family yeah. as, if, as if it's another family member and so it's, it feels like it's just as lost as every, everything else that happens in the movie 
uh, swirls around them is continually in motion. And um, what it observes is just this family that's completely oblivious to everything else. It's kind of exists almost more on a symbolic than a literal level. Hmm. It's, a, it's a kind of surreal uh, Vietnam film in that way. And as the story goes, uh, CBS had contracted to to do this because uh, Pap was a prominent uh, writer, well known for some of the other work that he'd done over the years and um, extremely well respected. And um, he gives them this play and they're like, we're never going to get any advertisers for it. There actually are protests at CBS uh, when they they were going to present it. And so they end up slotting it into a late night time slot with no commercials. Played oh. it once and it disappeared forever. <laughs> oh, really? And as the story goes, the version that's on YouTube is a version that someone had stolen from the CBS vaults, ripped cool. it and put online. <laughs> and it... I, you know, looking at it now, it's one of those few controversial works of art that really deserves the uh, that that uh, controversial the controversy attached to it. Really? Yeah, uh, it's very good. It's and very good. It, yeah, it is very good, and it's very it's different from everything else you've worked on. Huh? Yeah, it's it's by far I'd say the most. Uh, tight, coherent, passionate film he created. And it was a television movie. <laughs> it was a TV movie, yeah. Interesting. Well, that's, I mean, I would not have expected that. Then he did Two Tons of Turquoise, which I, I just talked about. Then he did a series of comedies that are like these lowbrow comedies. He did five of them, or four of them. No, five okay. of them, excuse me, over the years. Oh, up uh up the academy yeah up the academy which is a uh, the mad magazine take on animal house it's a famously I, terrible movie i actually haven't rewatched it i haven't seen it since it came out in 1980 i've always now wanted it to see it, me. yeah <laughs> i'm gonna watch I, it because i'm gonna now binge the rest of his work um it's on amazon it's uh rental oh boy yeah i've always wanted to see it i know it'll be terrible but i, I just <sighs> I got, I got a real big Mad Magazine collection and I, I just feel incomplete not seeing it, even though they disowned it themselves. They disowned it, right? Yeah. Uh, I watched two of the movies he, he directed with his son. His son is in both of them. Uh, Rented Lips from 87 and Hugo Pool from 97. Both yeah. are um, comedies of a sort. Both are very strange films where the comedy doesn't quite pull together. I like Hugo Pool more than most of the people who posted reviews of it. It's um, it's got Alyssa Milano and Malcolm McDowell and Patrick Dempsey among other people. Yeah, John Penn in a very strange performance. Um, and it's actually got a kind of cute at its center, but the movie's just so strange and rambles so much. Well, I hear he didn't he didn't like that movie. I do, he didn't like how it turned out after yeah. he made it. Well, he Would made... you be hesitant to watch something when the director themselves disavow it? But you keep saying strange so much, I kind of do want to see it. <laughs> well, I liked it because well, it's a story, uh, so that's hard, is actually a pretty nice story, which is um, Melissa Milano was a pool cleaner in SoCal, and her she 
wants to help her mom out, get over her gambling debt. So her mom comes and helps him with her the pool business. And I actually really enjoyed watching the two of them together on the screen. It's actually like really nice to see a, a character and her mom just kind of hanging out. Hmm. And then McDowell is her dad. And McDowell's story is that he was a heroin addict in the film. And there's a very odd scene where um, he pretends to inject heroin into a hand puppet that looks like him. Uh-huh. But then there's a story that he is part of his essentially 12 step program is that he has to transfer the love of drugs to this puppet as a way of kind of giving himself the closure he gets from taking the drug, but also doing it in a way that doesn't hurt anybody. And I find it kind of oddly moving. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it has interesting elements to it. And then she falls in love with Patrick Dempsey, who owns a pool or wants to put in the pool because he has ALS. Okay. And he wants to use it to do his exercises, but she kind of falls in love with him because he's Patrick Dempsey, you know, super handsome dude. <laughs> And um, it's actually kind of a sweet little story. And the end is, is I'll say, the end is sad. Uh, so as I told so you, I like, hate it? because everything else in the movie makes no sense. Oh, okay. <laughs> so like the Sean Penn character is a complete cipher, acts bizarre, almost like, uh, almost like Forrest Gump or something. And there's no reason for it. And it doesn't really follow it all. There's a bunch of other supporting characters where there's either gags that seem like they're going to lead to something and don't actually lead to anything. Or the characters are just annoying as hell. Oh. Uh, but I, mm-hmm. it's like a two and a half star movie to me. Well, I kind of want to see it now. I mean, I'm not it's, expecting it to be good. It's but on I'm, like Tubi or something. Well, it's not on Tubi, or I haven't found it on there yet. <laughs> not on the oh, community. no, I watched it on YouTube. I, that's another one I watched oh, on YouTube. YouTube, okay. And then YouTube also, no, Rare Film had uh, Rented Lips, which is okay. written by Martin Mull and has, is just full of cocaine logic, but actually closes with a Busley, Busby Berkeley-style musical number about the Indian hortic- horticulture. Native American Indian horticulture scored by Van Dyke Parks. Hey, I love him. <laughs> and it's 84 minutes or something. All his movies are ridiculously short. So is that um, one worth seeing? That sounds very interesting. Is that worth seeing? I can't recommend it. And I, uh, but I think it's I think you'd find it interesting enough. Hmm. I don't know. It's 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 also wacky. I mean Martin Mull is a PBS producer who was making doc makes documentaries for PBS and he gets forced basically to make his ne- next documentary at the same time. He makes a porno film and the whole porno film side just is not funny and kind of not very entertaining, but the uh-huh. weird documentary part is interesting and he gets hooked up with Jennifer Tilly and the romance between them makes no sense at all. But she's charming as always in this movie. So <laughs> it's like a two-star movie. Not as good as Hugo Pool. Interesting. And then, okay, so to close this out, because this yeah. is already just this very odd story about this man's very odd career. The last film he made, which is also on YouTube, is called Rittenhouse Square. And it's okay. a documentary about 
the the squared Philadelphia that's kind of like Philadelphia's uh, Central Park. Okay. And it's literally just a documentary about people who live nearby and enjoy going to the park and uh, things that happen there, and like uh, charity events and political events and a little bit about the history of it. And it's just this very nice kind of hangout documentary. And it's got at least four or five scenes where Downing just interviews people. He, at this point, he's he's born in 36. The movie came out in 05, so he's in his 70s. And uh-huh. he just talks to people and says very kind of charmingly easygoing film. Interesting. <laughs> All uh, right. It's just an extremely pleasant watch. Well, that's a nice way to to wrap up a career. That's the final work he he did in his career. Yeah, I mean to be an old man in a park, right? Like, yeah, yeah. And he talks to other old men in the park, and they talk about how much they enjoyed seeing young girls in the park, um, which has a touch of perviness. But over a certain age, it's not so pervy again, um, at least in my mind. And, and it's just <laughs> this very kind of I don't know is is this very. So Sticks and Bones and Rittenhouse Square like really stand out in his career as being these real anomalies that maybe hmm. are like a different direction as his career could have gone. But instead he went uh, up the academy. All right. <laughs> anyway, with a long speech there saying um, he's not just a two movie guy, but if you just stick with the two movies, um, you're not necessarily going to miss any classics. No, no other i mean well sticks and bones sounds interesting yeah yeah it's a grim it's a grim show uh but i think but it's it's raw right i mean it's 1973 Mm. so there's not very much like film about vietnam at that point it just feels like the emotions are right at the surface you know it's got this hatred of nixon mixed in it's mm. like at the beginning of the American malaise, right? War, Watergate is just starting to happen. Uh, you know, the, the helicopters are about to leave uh, Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, you know, Nixon's going to re- resign the next year. Um, the gas crisis is going on. It's like full of this American despair of the early 70s. And so, you know, it actually feels a bit like one of the um, the new American cinema of the 70s. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and then I mean, it, it's interesting to think he he could have gone in that direction, and now we just we really think of just two movies and a whole bunch of oddities, right? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I mean, in the end, like, and I I'll end up watching the last four or so movies I haven't seen by him, including Up the Academy. There's also a movie he did called A Touch of Greatness about a school teacher that I haven't been able to find anywhere. Oh yeah, an older one, yeah. Yeah, from 05. Um, also supposed to be pretty interesting, but uh, doesn't seem to be on any of the, even the, the uh, gray market streaming platforms. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I'm stuck with this feeling, and this is really presumptuous of me to say, like he could have been a better film, a greater filmmaker than he was. He kind oh, of yeah. Did... I mean, he knows what he's doing behind the camera. Like, in terms of of looking like interesting movies you know he he's got a style and he, he's got some substance there um but i th- i mean maybe he was just making movies for himself right i think he was i think he was 
He was surrounded by a circle of friends who also enjoyed themselves. Yeah. And he had his drug problems. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I'm kind of I'm kind of torn because I mean, I really enjoyed Greaser's Palace, you know. Um Punny Swoop not as much, but then you know, you hear <laughs> I listened to that that uh, conversation, uh, you know, Jonathan Demi and Paul Thomas Anderson had, and they're just they're swooning over his work. You know, they have almost the same opinions that we do, where it's like, yeah, you can't follow the story, and uh, you know, it's really wild and stuff. But you know, they're they're bowing at his at his feet. You know, kind of, these are masterpieces. Yeah, well, they're fun little they're fun little movies. I would watch Greaser's Palace again. That's for sure. But, I think I there's mean, yeah, I think there's some of that where like if you're a certain level of well, no, I'll put it in a nice way. Um, I think Anderson especially can relate to Downey because I mean Anderson's dad was uh a LA movie host and had aspirations in the in the movies, and he could probably see himself a lot in Downey Jr. Mm. And so I wonder yeah. if there's um, a touch of that in their relationship. But also, you know, they see things I don't see and you don't see, and that's cool yeah. too. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Jonathan Demi was talking about one shot in uh, Greaser's Palace, and he was saying, oh, you know, the camera sticks on the characters for a really long time. And, you know, oh, maybe maybe almost too long, and it's just hilarious. And I thought, like, I, I don't know. That wasn't a funny shot to me. I guess if you're a filmmaker and you're picturing the guy making the film, then then having that shot go on for too long is kind of funny. But uh, I got I got a bigger kick out of the poop jokes. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he definitely laid a bomb. Definitely laid a bomb. Yeah, I'm glad I got yeah. to watch all these movies though. I'm glad you enjoyed the more or less enjoyed the couple you watched. Yeah, it, well, it's definitely an avenue worth exploring, right? He's a He's a weird little corner of the cinematic universe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's definitely a weird little corner of the cinematic universe. Let me know what you think about the Academy, because um, I think I'm going to pay the buck of 99 <laughs> to see it also. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I might pull the trigger. We'll see. Yeah. It's his lowest rated film on Letterboxd for what it's worth. I mean, when Mad Magazine disowns you, you know you've really screwed up. <laughs> I know. It's got a really young Ralph Macchio in it. So, uh, yeah. wax on, yeah. wax off. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I've seen a lot of really bad Animal House um, copycats. Like, there's, there was a lot of them. And none of them are good. So, I don't know if I want to sit through another one. <laughs> I'm not even sure I could sit through Animal House at this point. Oh, I don't know. It's got its moments. <laughs> it's got its moments. Thanks, Chris. All right.